Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the legislative session is right around the corner. It's the 10th of January today as we record this, and uh, what session starts on the 16th this year, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, the latest thing in the in the news is that a bunch of pre-file legislation has dropped. Um, those pre-file bills are always interesting and uh, sometimes performative. There's, you know, <laughs> personal projects, pet projects, signaling, uh, intention, and a, a few benign things that trickle through. I feel like the pre-file legislation just doesn't often go anywhere, but a couple of them get rocket boosters. I feel like it's the thing that, you know, for... You know, everyone's like in transit right now, so it's like hard to get a lot of like legislator interviews and do these preview stories. So it's like the one thing that like a lot of us reporters are like, okay, we got that to fall back on. Like, I'm planning on doing a story on Friday when we get the second release because I don't have a whole lot else going on at this moment. I kind of like, I go back and forth on these things because I think it is interesting, right, to see where these bills are and what these legislators' priorities are. But also, like, it's it's in a vacuum right like typically these bills these pre-files were like just getting the language of the bill right so sometimes it's like hard to figure out what the bill does they don't have the sponsor statements they don't have they're not available to ask questions of frequently um so as to say all to say i haven't looked at them particularly closely yet i have looked at a couple of them and that are kind of interesting there's one that uh rep story put out that's gonna create a pre-registration for voters who are 16 or 17 years old and I'm, i think that's a little bit of an on-ramp to getting people plugged into uh, voting systems i'd actually like to see that w- one go farther as a as a wild idea i'd love to see uh 16 year olds in alaska allowed to vote in municipal elections i think it'd be kind of interesting to be able to get kids that are in high school plugged into voting while they're still in, in kind of in that system in that ecosystem because you know when you're 18 19 and wander off into the world it's really hard to figure out voting in, in the middle of all these new life changes well especially when like high school kids are some of the people that are most affected by local elections right i yeah. mean the their the school board races are a huge element of of their life and a lot of those young people you know ostensibly you'd like them to continue to live in those communities right and so having them to have some sort of influence and shaping how that would work you'd think it would be a good idea yeah if you look at the thing in the matsu the the they've kind of minimized the impact that the student representative has it would be much harder to do that if if there was some accountability to younger voters people who are like 16 17 18 I think have the maturity certainly to participate in elections. And I would also say that people over eighteen don't. <laughs> there's no magical yeah. where you become more mature. I would, I would yeah. say there's a lot of people well over eighteen that don't have you know yeah. maybe lack some of those facilities. I was just gonna say you don't have like necessarily the same depth of life experience, but I think that the trade-off is that there's a lot more um, like innocence and there's a lot more um, like, like there's less less motivation by um political and financial factors right so yeah, they like, hate, if they you're don't 16, hate property 17, taxes as much yeah yet. <laughs> if you're 16 17 years old you're not motivated by pro- property taxes I, it might be good to have some people who are who are voting uh based a little more on on heart issues than pocketbook issues um but anyways yeah so that's one what else is in the pre-file there's a kind of a scheme to build an alaska uh, gas pipeline that's sort of a trade-off and gets like we take some permanent fund money now and build this thing and then uh, then you get then the permanent fund issue is a 50-50 magically resolved thing later on I don't think that's going to really go anywhere but it's a it's an interesting idea the thing I, that that I sort of bristled at first of all with that one was that the uh, it, it seems like it's an effort to get this gas line built for Anchorage so that there's you know, the Cook Inlet is a huge problem right now. Is like your energy prices are yeah. going to go through the roof in a few years is kind of what it's looking like without new major development or this gas line. And so there's this kind of a mad scramble to get new gas for Anchorage. Should that be borne by the entire state? Uh, I, you know, it's 
that's kind of an interesting I thing. I thought that it's was like, the most interesting response to it all, right? Is that it's, you know, the permanent fund is supposed to be for Alaska, right? Yeah. And, and then to, I think it's like a quarter of the whole fund, right, would be sort of designated to buying a stake in this pipeline that, yeah, ostensibly benefits right. primarily people on the road system, so... Right, yeah. So does yeah. some of that go to power cost equalization, or, or is it all just, <laughs> is it all just like gas gravy for Anchorage? So, I mean, I think some of the Matsu folks would argue that you know, if energy prices are lower in Anchorage, you should just move there, right? Yeah. Why yeah. would you want to live in rural Alaska? Why would you want to live yes. off the road system? The, I think, the concrete. Cube I think there's theory. some of those attitudes that are kind of still alive in that sort yeah. of those calculations. That Why are, live anywhere else when we can all live in a gray concrete cube in Anchorage? There's like Anchorage can be like big Whittier. Yeah. Okay. So uh, other pre-file legislation. Is there anything else in there that's interesting to you? One of the dorky ones that I think is kind of near and dear to my heart is uh, Representative Stop from Fairbanks has got a Alaska University of Alaska Major Maintenance and Modernization Fund. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's a you know the the idea where you know we're, how we take care of our buildings that you know this large stockpile of buildings that we have I you know started reporting in Fairbanks and one of the big stories I first reported there was on uh, the the um, borough library and its roof was uh, leaking I think and and I think it was sort of in that discussion that was like well yeah all the buildings that we built 50 years ago were built to last 50 years and now they're all you know wearing out and I think that's like you know, I know that there's several senators and legislators who like the ma- major maintenance list keeps them up at night. But it's like kind of an interesting element of like, how, you know, we build these b- big capital projects, but we really don't like factor in the cost of how we like take care of them in the long term. Um, it's becoming a big issue, too, around um, road maintenance. Right. You know, especially around plowing in the around, you know, in the Anchorage, South Central area all these discussions of like, well, let's add more road miles, build bigger highways, and let's not increase the maintenance budget at all. And um, so I think it's interesting to see somebody like taking that and and linking about it. I haven't like dug through the bill yet, but I think the idea of like figuring out a plan of how we take care of these things is interesting, even if it's not the most like sexy thing in the world. Yeah, that's, uh, um, you know, as a UAF grad, I can (laughs) speak to some of those building maintenance needs. I mean, it's like, and it's. I think it kind of like speaks to the legislative like process a little bit, like new roads and new buildings and all this sort of stuff is really like fun. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's way cooler to go back and say, yeah, we brought home the fifty million dollars to build the engineering building. It's not so interesting to say we brought eight million dollars back to replace the roof of several buildings, like right. So yeah, it yeah it becomes really noticeable when we have like crumbling <laughs> infrastructure all over our state. Yeah, another one is this. Um, Representative Gray has a bill for a uh, essentially it's like a statewide bed tax, but I, I think that the goal with that one probably is to get some data on and rein in a bit the VRBO Airbnb seen statewide. I think that there's, uh, you know, every community is kind of dealing with this in their own way right now. This is a way for the state to capture some revenue. I think it's a 6% tax on, you know, commercial bed rentals. And, you know, it's a business that has experienced kind of a wild, wild west era and is now starting to get reined in a little bit more. And it's also evolving a little bit more, right? In, In the early days of the Airbnb craze there's a you know it's a lot of people like you and me renting out a room and making some money and being able to pay rent and now it's turning into these like commercial cohorts of like you know people that own multiple buildings and have like a manager that and a whole staff structure and um you know it's it i think that trying to kind of wrap our arms around what that's become is really important for alaska like in juno here we're talking about that a lot too so like right now i think there's a registration that they put in place just because they want to know how many people are doing it and who owns the who owns the rentals i mean i think yeah it's it's interesting especially when you talk about like you know what's available to buy right like so it becomes difficult for young first-time homeowners to to maybe compete with some of these bigger chains or these collections of of uh, rental properties so yeah and it just fills places up too you know you've got places that are essentially occupied but empty and so um, I'm going to make as much money renting this place out in the summer as I would renting it year round and with less hassle. And so 
I'm going to do that instead has kind of been the choice. And so we've got, you know, people that are that are having the housing market is essentially tightened while our population is declining, which is a which is a weird occurrence. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a that's an interesting one to me just in terms of like the data that we'll bring in. And it seems like a reasonable, uh, reasonable tax and we need state revenue. So I think I'm on board with that one. Yeah, I mean, I think like these pre-file bills are always really interesting, moderately to some somewhat interesting. I think, you know, the session, I've been thinking about it a lot this year. You know, I usually I do these uh, for my memo. I'll do like a funny end of year roundup and maybe looking ahead. And I've really just been like struggling with it this last couple weeks. Like I have this like, I don't know, it's probably about 3,000 words right now of like wow. words that I just hate at this point yeah well so i guess kind of where i ended up with this piece is that it's like talking about all the stories and all these issues that i wish we could uh finally resolve in 2024 but no we won't oh um you know i think you know so what are you looking back at like what's the patterns that are recurring there well i think the biggest thing the biggest clearest thing really right is the fiscal plan like this is something that I, you know, I've been in Alaska reporting on state politics since 2011. I saw the oil uh, prices basically come back down to earth or collapse, however you want to kind of phrase it at this point, um, in 2013, 2014. It, and basically ever since then, we've like, it has felt like Alaska has sort of been teetering on the edge of a financial cliff ever since then. We're like, we're always, you know, if you always look at these projections, we are always one to five years away, uh, a bad, you know, economic downturn away from like financial ruin, right? Like, it's sort of how it's felt. And and it's sort of how we've legislated, right? We have um, cut massively, we've cut to a point where we really, really doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of political will to cut beyond there. We haven't seen any sort of significant proposals beyond a few million dollars here, a few million dollars there. And I think what's so frustrating about it is that during some of those, like the most tough draconian cuts, like in those early days, is that we were told that we'll get around to new revenue as soon as we right-size government, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's really the, the problem here is that we have a structural deficit where we are not bringing enough revenue to, to cover the expenses between this sort of slimmed down government, between the statutory formula for the PFD and and the solutions, right? These are there are only really a few levers here is like you got to either spend less or raise more. And we're kind of reached the point where we're spending as less as least as little as as (laughs) like politically feasible. Right. And there's still no real movement on adding new revenue like we've we've past the POMV, so the permanent funds helping fund it, um, but we really have no meaningful like movement on new revenue here. And I think like, and, and you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons why that is, right? There's different, you know, user groups that are, you know, or different constituencies that uh, feel differently about different tax structures, right? Uh, there's a faction of people that still believe we should just cut the dividend and be done with it because still that, that technically balances out all right, right? If you were just to cut the dividend, we'd be fine. We wouldn't have to have new taxes. Uh, whether or not cutting the dividend is a tax is, you know, that's a big debate there. But I feel like, you know, we've had discussions, right? We, we talked about income taxes. We've talked about sales taxes. We've talked about other, you know, oil and gas taxes. But to me, like the big issue right now that we are in is we have a governor who's going to veto whatever they do. So why even do it, right? And I think that is, to me, is like this deeply kind of frustrating element to be like walking into 2024 with the lack of a fiscal plan. You know, it's used as an excuse to against investing in Alaska, against, yeah. you know, making these sort of meaningful changes that we need. You know, we, uh, you know, the governor vetoed half of the money uh, for education funding increase last year. This, this year's budget doesn't include either of any of that money, right? So it's actually, we're, you know, education funding is going to be going down this next year. Like the education funding is going to be a huge battle this year. Like the legislature is in a position to maybe do something about it. But again, they come up against this hard ceiling of like, we just don't have yeah. enough revenue. I mean, that's, right? def- that's definitely an element of it. And I think like education funding, I mean, I think that there's going to be a push to, you know, permanently increase it through the 
uh, a BSA legislation increase. That would be more politically difficult for the governor to veto, but he's already said he opposes it. He's, you know, his commissioner, Dina Bishop, has um, basically done a 180 on it, has gone from, you know, advocating for school funding increases to uh, opposing them. You know, they argue that basically the state should direct really, you know, targeted investments here and there. But basically the, the real answer is, you know, so the end result of the governor's position is that you go from $174 million of additional funding every year to something like $86 million over five years. And that's, it's just such a big gulf of, of difference there. Um, and I think that like, for me, I think it's really, yeah, as I was saying, it's frustrating because it feels like we're kind of like standing still on a lot of these things. And I think largely because we have a governor who opposes it on ideological grounds and and in substitution, like, right, you know, so that he released his budget, you know, where people were asking yeah. about the new revenue, the lack of a fiscal plan, the fact that his budget runs out of money in like two years. And he goes, well, we'll just drill mine and log our way to prosperity and and i think that like even if you know the wind is blowing at the back of every one of these projects they were getting the green light all the way down those things are like 10 years away right like we talk about the willow project it's the most it's probably the most like got the most momentum of any project like in recent memory and it's still like at the end of this decade that it would be coming online and, and because of the tax structure it's it doesn't actually make all that much money for the state you know like i you know i'm I, you know right like i i'm a i'm a reporter i'm a journalist i'm a writer or whatever but ultimately like i'm a resident of alaska and i really want alaska to like be good and and be a welcoming open place for for everybody and it's feeling like every year it just seems to get worse more people move away so i think when i'm looking at this legislative session i'm finding it hard to be particularly optimistic even though like i would say that we're at a point where we we are we have you know thanks to ranked choice voting we have a lot more legislators who are are open-minded who understand that like you can't do government for free that people you know there are services that are good <laughs> that maybe we shouldn't have a food yeah. stamp backlog maybe childcare should be somewhat accessible and and it, and it feels like we still have this kind of roadblock um to it all yeah the the right sizing cracks are showing and we're seeing that kind of every day in the news most visibly probably in the food stamp program but there's a lot of other departments too where people are taking on too much or have a mandate to do more than they have the capacity for and you're right like a lot of these problems go back to Dunleavy like he's he's the dead end for a lot of these efforts like he's going to either veto them or he's not going to engage or he's going to be coy and quiet about them in a way that doesn't allow them to progress because no one wants to put the effort in if they feel like it's going to just not go anywhere. He's just eaten up a lot of mm -hmm. potential. Like, there are people who have left the state because of him. There are, people, there are people like myself who spend a ton of time trying to undo bad policy, trying to fight against and prevent terrible policy that could be building things, that could be making new things, It could be, like, you know, it's a really tough thing to decide where to prioritize your energy and to look at a state that is just feels like it's stagnant mm -hmm. like that we're not we're not really like growing evolving moving towards the future we've sort of been stuck in the mud for six years under Dunleavy and we've got you know th three left or whatever I guess he's been f five years now so god it feels like it's been a hundred but um <laughs> <laughs> anyways yeah I don't I do think that there's a bright spot in the legislature the legislature is like pretty decent right now that like I'd love to see a little more flex in the house but the senate is a solid coalition and they're doing good things and I, I like the, their approach to government I'd love to see a similar group in the house um it'll be interesting to see what the next election cycle brings mm -hmm. I mean I think it's really interesting right brings. now I think that um the impact of ranked choice voting uh is really hard to deny right now I think that um, you know, a lot of these races where the option was between, um, you know, a really hard right Republican and a, and a more moderate one in almost every one of those cases, a more moderate one won. And, and these are these are, you know, people who understand reality, who agree that inflation is a thing that agree that if you want someone to do a hard job, you got to pay them. And I think that we have at least one more election 
with ranked choice voting. I think it will be really interesting to see here. We have, there are a couple races here and there that are already starting to take shape, um, on, especially on the Kenai. So you have Representative Ben Carpenter, one of the like most hard right, odious Republicans out there, uh, going up against Jesse Bjorkman, Senator Jesse Bjorkman, who's pretty moderate, likable guys, you know, labor friendly, he's a school teacher. Um, and then you have down on the um, Valley, or uh, down on in Homer, you have Sarah Vance, who's facing a much more sort of chamber of commerce sort of traditional businessy Republican. You know, Vance and Carpenter, I think, are some of the, the kind of the most like thought leaders, I guess, for the you know hard right Republicans on, on these issues, which is maybe not when, the most uh, flattering thing to say. But when you say Carpenter's running against Bjorkman, is that in the Senate or is that on the House? For the Senate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's trying to move up from the House to the Senate. Okay. All right. Yeah. That was confusing to me. This is the guy that hired Donna Arduin as his uh, staffer this last year. Yeah. It was weird seeing her around the building again. So and then his feet, his seat will be open, and we and yeah. that that could fill in with kind of anyone too. Um, the you know you've got Utkiagvik up on the on North Slope. There's a new appointed representative right now who's kind of a placeholder, maybe more conservative than that district could be replaced in an election, um, depending mm-hmm. on who runs. You kind of come back to like that's the important thing is like you got to have good candidates. You have to have good people, good options for, uh, for people to vote for, and you know I. I think we're all experiencing some frustration with the presidential election of just feeling trapped in this cycle of let's vote between two old white guys that are, you know, maybe not either of our favorites. But then on the local level, like having more options, having four people to choose from, um, hopefully encouraging, you know, young folks to get involved and to run. It's been the the freshman legislators this last session were amazing. And it's, um, you know, I'm hoping that we see a lot more new faces, too this next year. And I think there's a lot of areas there where people can step into that role. Uh, I, but also, I think, you know, we were talking about the governor and how everything kind of comes back to the governor. I think we've got to get ahead of yeah. 2026 election to, you know, really start having some conversations about who we want leading us. You know, is that going to be, um, you know, does does Mary Peltola come home and run for governor? Does uh, does Val Davidson step up and run for governor? Does um, Heidi Dragas get in the race? Does, you know, um, uh, Click Bishop run? Who's, who's, who, who do we, who do we want to see in that race and who are we interested in, you know, and how do we start building support and cohesion instead of getting into another situation where we've got the baggage supporters fighting the Walker Walker supporters, or the Walker supporters fighting the Guerra supporters, or the you know like, mm. I feel like we've. You look at the you know rank choice. The phenomenon of rank choice voting is is really interesting to me, and seeing Peltola's pathway last year, where where we had uh, Palin and Begich, uh, Nate that's Nick Begich, uh, you know, kind of disparaging each other and duking it out, and she sort of just like rose above it and became our representative. Like that was that was kind of a cool thing to see, but I think on the other side we saw Dunleavy do the same thing, where the Walker and the Guerra supporters were kind of at each other about who should drop out or who could do it or who couldn't do it, and then it, you know not enough focus on Dunleavy, and he just sort of like wandered through, and here we are yeah. again. I mean, and, it, and he also it also helped too that he had like the shell of Charlie Pierce. You know, running is in there rather than um, like an actual. It was a fifth place finisher, Christopher Kirka, who I think would have made it more interesting at least. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And, but yeah, so that I mean that brings us. I, I want to talk about the initiatives yeah. that have been coming together here. You know, the governor's not on this ballot, right? There's two initiatives on the ballot, aiming for the ballot. Yeah. This There's year. several initiatives I think out there, oh, there right now. So yeah. we've got the. We've got the the oh, yeah, campaign uh, finance reform, we've, which I've been working on pretty hard. It's probably not going to make it on this year's ballot. Potential for the ranked choice voting, Alaskans for honest elections, not to be confused with the Alaskans for better elections, of which I am a member. Um, Alaskans for honest elections has been trying to repeal our voting system, our new voting system, and go back to kind of the the bad old ways. And um, they uh, claim to have gathered enough signatures, um, but have not submitted them yet. And then. There's the minimum wage initiative that just submitted signatures, what, yesterday or something like that. Yeah. So that one I kind of jazzed me up a little bit, honestly. Like in this sort of like big kind of malaise of, of, of politics. So the, there's a minimum wage initiative. It's sort of the third time that um, an initiative on the minimum wage has been 
um, headed toward the ballot since 2000. Um, this one is is kind of is is interesting. It, it basically steps up the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour by 2027. It guarantees paid sick leave for almost all employees. I think there's like a, a few here and there, like in in the farming and agricultural uh, and like food processing that wouldn't necessarily get it. But and then it um, has this like interesting sort of bill of rights in there where it, it would prevent you from. Uh, your job from re requiring you to sit through political or re religious or what really I think is the key is anti-union uh, meetings mm -hmm. um, at, that aren't related to your job. Um, so they turned in their signatures yesterday, which would have been uh, January 9th. And it was, I, so I got to go, I went to the, the thing, covered it for the Alaska Current. Um, what I think was really interesting about it though, is that there was a woman there, um, her name is Rebecca uh, Rice, and she's a uh, in-home caregiver, right? So one of these many sort of critical jobs that is very poorly paid in Alaska. So she was talking about her personal experience with it where, you know, she became sick and didn't have the sick leave and quickly ran out of money, was, found herself homeless, was able to rely on, on friends and family to sort of get through it. Um, but I think that, like, is it, really emblematic of like the bigger struggles that we're having right now. So I think that, you know, we talk about, um, you know, the homelessness issue in Anchorage, right? And I think that a lot of the ways that people talk about it, talk about it as if these are people who are lazy, who don't work, who are alcoholics or have drug, other drug issues. And to me, and I think this story is to me is like really important in remembering that there are like a lot of working people who are unhoused. There are a lot of people who, you know, are were one missed paycheck away from it. And I think that like, you know, to me, this situation where we have these like kind of camps that are popping up around the city should be like deeply alarming to the like overall economics like <laughs> status of alaska yeah. right yeah that, like it's it's it, like we have a quiet dust bowl gr growing yeah and <laughs> oh 100 percent. and i think that like you know you look at some of these areas these are people that are like living in rvs right this isn't like somebody who just like stumbled around these are people that like had stuff and yeah. now they don't have a home, right? And I think that minimum wage, $15 minimum wage is still really not like a thriving wage, you know, but it's not no. a starvation wage, I think. I think right now, I think people would consider, you know, the, the what, the $12 that it is right now close, you know, if you're working that, you're hardly making any money. And I think um, just the amount of like strain and stress that, people are going through, I think, is is sort of a result of some of these like stagnations. I think people are living way closer to the edge than most of us would even care to admit, right? I think very few of us, um, I think a lot of us are like lucky to have a support system, right? Like if I lost all my work tomorrow, I have family that I could, you know, would I'd be able to make the mortgage, right? And yeah. Um, very fortunate for that. But I think a lot of people, and that was her thing, you know, so she, this is, you know, so Rebecca, she was talking about it and she goes, you know, she's like, I was fortunate, right? Like I wasn't able to buy Christmas presents for my family, but I, we were at a couch to stay on. Right. And, and think about the people who don't even have that. And, and so in the context of, of raising the minimum wage, I think that like is, is, you know, like it's a way to like make it so people don't have to rely on some of these services who, you know, maybe they won't end up in the homelessness situation in the first place, which requires all these other services, social safety nets to help them get out of. And so it's like, yeah, they can be could... productive and participants instead of like need, needing all these services and needing attention and being part of a big homeless discussion. And like, you know, yeah. when we've got, when we've got a migrating tent city roving across Anchorage, like that takes a lot of, community effort to sort of police and understand and feed and yeah. and it, yeah, uh, argue almost, about and yeah. then and then all of a sudden you're like oh if we just paid people just a little bit more we wouldn't have quite as big of a tent city yeah it's well like, i think that's like the biggest thing is that you know i'm sure that you know the more cost effective approach to solving the homelessness issue is ensuring that people don't become homeless in the first place right and right. that is by ensuring that they have enough income or, 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 you know, paid sick leave or these sort of things where, you know, a minor 
you know, life change or a minor event in your life doesn't spell catastrophe, right? And I think that those things like like halfway decent paying jobs is a really good way of getting there. And and so I hope that, you know, this if this is if there's one thing that we can kind of get excited about this year, I think it should be something like that. So yeah. I think that, you know, we, we talk about all this sort of stuff. And I think, you know, one of the interesting points that they're bringing up, too, is that there's a lot of job. You know, we talk about minimum wage. Not a ton of people are actually working minimum wage. I think it's something like 20,000 or 12, 20,000 or maybe 12,000. I can't remember exactly what the number. 12,000 people, I think, is work at minimum wage. But there are a lot of jobs that are pegged to minimum wage or linked to it in some way that are either, you know, two times the minimum wage or or even right. jobs right like if you had people that had disposable income right like that and and spent it like that would help ever other people and so i think you know i think it's interesting i think it was interesting too to hear them talk about like well why not twenty dollars why not an actual living wage right and i think there's there is some you know concern in here about how you balance everything out and how you step it up how you kind of get into it and i think it's all been very thoughtful uh, on that front, and so I think that you know, if we can really make a like a long-term lasting difference for people, you know, I think that's that's a good way of going about it, right? I think if yeah. we're going to fight, and help close about, that wealth gap, right? Like that income yeah. gap has grown so much over the last like sixty years or whatever. As you look at those kind of charts about in- income inequality, and it's and it's it's sort of haunting. And mm-hmm. you think about, you know, from my perspective as a small business owner, I, you know, I, I've got this like comic shop bookstore. Let's say a millionaire comes in and, and buys a $20 comic from me and you come in and buy a $20 comic from me. That's the same thing. Like, I don't care. So it's it's better for me in the long run to have more Matt Buxton's out there than to have more millionaires out there. <laughs> you know, like I don't yeah. want wealth consolidation because – like how many how many cups of coffee is is a is a billionaire gonna need right mm-hmm. and it's like they're just gonna like the the more wealthy you get the less you're actually sort of contributing to the on the ground businesses and and I think for small business owners like broadening the wealth base is a is a really good idea yeah. um, you know when we talk about you know we're <laughs> trapped in this like capitalist system but if there's more money. If, if the money is spread out more equitably, then more people can participate and more people can benefit. And it just kind of like feeds itself in a more positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, you know, money gets hovered up and trapped in weird places. And it's like, it's like snow drifts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, yeah, I mean, it's exactly a good point. And I think too, other, the other element, and it's not part of this too, is that like, yeah, like I totally agree that anybody working a full-time job should be able to support their family. I also kind of think that anybody working a part-time job should also be able to support their family. Like I think that yeah. there's like I think this like concept of like a 40-hour work week for everybody is a weird construct, right? Like we yeah. it's not been around for like the great vast number um, you know, portion of human history. So I think that like some of these ideas of how we like value work and value people like I'm, I'm getting into my feels a little bit here, but like yeah. I think there's interesting elements of this discussion too, just about like the nature uh, of of work itself, and and like this idea that like to be a productive member of society, you need to be like putting in 40 hours a week of whatever, you know, or to be um, deserving of not being homeless. Like I mean, right. that's the thing, right? It's like if you know if you're saying that everyone who doesn't work 40 hours a week should be homeless, like that's a pretty bad take. Yeah, you yeah, know, exactly. and I think there needs to be a lot of room for people to, to get sick and recover, or to have a child and spend some time with them, or to um, go on a vacation, or to play a video game, or to read a book. You know, there like needs to be enough space in people's life for the fulfilling things, so they yeah. can get outdoors and see this great state we live in. And um, you know, and we're trapped in this grind of like a forty-hour work week with with no sick leave and you know not a lot of not a lot of uh time for yourself like it it can be hard and i've seen people working you know the those two and three jobs and trying to hold it all together and how frazzled and stressed they are and you know it you can't the thing that we're doing when we talk about policy and politics and kind of the greater direction of the state you can't participate in that when you're like doing that grind and you people if you want a better society you need people with more capacity to think about it you need more people with more capacity to think about it and not just like a few rich people that can <laughs> sit around and make decisions for everyone else because they're too busy i mean yeah i mean it's the thing is like we're, we are you know so incredible 
you know, so incredibly productive, right? Like across, you know, in the aggregate, right? That like the fact that we like are, are more productive than we've ever been, but we're still working as much as we ever have. And the wealth is as imbalanced as it's ever been feels really messed up. Like you, you feel like you go back like several generations to like these, the, the, you know, these like fundamental founding father philosopher types. And they'd be like, what the hell are you guys doing? Right? Like you guys don't have to work. Why don't you guys sit around and like paint painting? I don't know. Like the, I think the Greeks would be like totally like, what the hell? Are you, what are you guys even think doing here? Anyway. You don't have any philosophy clubs in your town. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man, yeah. Oh, I, well, well, one thing I do want to say is that, like, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate through my work. You know, I'm a, I'm an independent contractor. I'm self-employed too. Right now, I'm working with the Alaska Current on contract, and it's been a really nice experience. And I think part of it is that they are. Um, you know, they are trying to live a lot of the ideals that they, you know, believe are important. So, for example, they follow the school calendar, right? So this is like I had like a week and a half, two weeks off. And it was like the first time I think since I've started like working that I had that long of a time off uh, consecutively and, and where I wasn't, you know, trying to answer emails or thinking about work. And it was it was really good. I think that like, you know, I think that. I think some of those things too, it's like, is, if we can find a way to embody some of those principles is really good. I think um, one last thing from this minimum wage initiative is that another speaker, another major backer of it is um, Carrie Fristo. He's the owner of Black Spruce Brewing in Fairbanks. And he was talking about how, you know, like for him, it was really important that they were able to, they, you know, they've been doing a lot of these things. They've been paying a better minimum wage. They've been, or paying a higher wage. They've been um, offering paid sick leave. And it's like, our employees are better employees. They they don't you know they don't have to feel like they have to come to work sick and then put everybody else at risk. They can stay home and get better and and, and not have to work be totally stressed about it. And I think, like and, and for him, it's like and our product's better because of it. You know, it's good for business to pay. You know, I think that's like this interesting thing. Like we are, you know, I think the the Boeing door blowing off is like you know. A lot of this, the follow-up stories on that is that it's the story about how Boeing is like cheaped out or up and down, right? The story of the yeah. Boeing Max crashes, is, you know, part of it is because they were outsourcing their coding to people making eight dollars an hour, right? And and I think you know some of this stuff that's coming out now is that like there were pretty cheap parts in there, and and so I think that like this sort of drive for maximum maximal profit over sort of the individual person is coming back to bite us in, in, in certain ways. And, you know, we see it on the national level. We see it on a state level. We see it in the leaky roofs. In the collapsing roofs. Yeah, the collapsing roofs too, yeah. You know, while we're on the topic of um, initiatives, there's I've, I've been putting some time into the campaign finance reform. Essentially what happened is the courts said that our contribution limits were too low at $500 for an individual and that they didn't, you know, keep up with inflation. And so... They threw them out and sort of said, "Well, do you want to argue this?" And Dunleavy said, "No, man. I'm the I'm the guy that thinks we should have four wheelers on the road. Freedom, freedom. And also, by the way, my brother's a has a five hundred thousand dollar check for me or whatever. So yeah. So there's no campaign contribution limits here in Alaska right now, which means you could give a hundred thousand dollars to a school board race and have quite a, a sway on that election and quite a sway on that uh, elected official, and so." You know, it's not it's not good. We know money buys elections. We know that money wins elections, and we know that it's hard to be uh, an independent candidate when you beholden to one person for all of your fundraising needs. And so, we're trying to reinstitute some reasonable contribution limits, and we're collecting signatures right now. We're not going to get them in before the legislature starts, so they won't be on the ballot this next cycle. But we're gonna what we're trying to do is collect enough signatures that that um, you know, it's an imminent ballot issue and that it forces the legislature to act because there is a bill in the legislature that would do pretty much the exact same thing that we're proposing. And the legislature can take care of this tomorrow, or well, not tomorrow, but they can take care of this next week if yeah. they want to. And I hope that they do because I think this should be a priority for them as well. You know, like it might be easy for a legislator to like go out and get one big check, it might be easier than going around and meeting a lot of people and getting a lot of little checks. But I think it's really important to have that connection to constituency and to be, you know, community funded and to to really be beholden to your 
to many donors rather than just the one donor. And yeah. so really hopeful that, that we can kind of patch that hole in our elections. Yeah, we all have free speech. Just some people have more free speech than others. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I, I wrote an op-ed. Did you read that one? Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, I, I put an op-ed in the ADN about this, actually. The uh, And I essentially said that, that the... You know the right. It's not a it's not a freedom of speech issue, which is what uh, opponents to campaign contribution limits argue. They say I should be able to give as much money as I want because it's a free speech issue, and uh, I think it's more of an equity of speech issue. Is that when one person is given like a, the mega horn of money and everyone else is <laughs> is drowned out, then then their speech is not heard, and so. You know, I think by having unlimited donations, it affects my freedom of speech in that my speech will not be heard. Mm -hmm. The other one that maybe we'll see materialize is this attempt to repeal the ranked choice voting and open primaries. And um, it's been a really, like, weird effort to gather the signatures. I haven't seen a single person out actually gathering them. They say they have 40,000 signatures, but I... We'll see how many of those are like real. And then also there's a requirement in initiative gathering that signatures be from a certain percentage be come from different districts. Mm-hmm. So you have to have um, a certain percentage in 30 of the 40 house districts. So you can't just sit in Anchorage and gather enough signatures to put something on the ballot. You have to actually get buy-in from other areas of the state. Um, which I, you know, I think a geographic distribution for initiative makes sense. Well, and the, the the interesting thing, right, is that this so this group has faced like a litany of uh, uh, complaints, allegations that they've been uh, skirting or ignoring or or, or whatever uh, of all of our campaign finance reporting laws. Part of that, um, part of the revelations that have come out through that process is that they don't even have those numbers from the, all the Anchorage districts, right? I think they were they were short in like 10 of them, I think is what they were saying, six of them. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what the number was, but they weren't even getting them in every Anchorage district. So I think that it's going to be really, you know, we're pretty close to the deadline for them having to turn them in. Um, I think, you know, beyond all of the kind of shady campaign finance issues that I've covered extensively at this point, I think there's a big question about whether or not they really do have the signatures. And I think that um, I think there was a lot of assumptions and a lot of, um, you know, it kind of sounded like they didn't even weren't fully aware of the requirement to get all the all the 30 um, house, 30 of the 40 house districts represented in here. There's a lot of like things that like if you know how to do it, it's it's easy enough to follow. If you don't, you can get yourself into some pretty big trouble. So. I, I think that they will submit signatures of some kind. I think that they, I think there will be a pretty significant process to uh, review those signatures. And, you know, there's a process by which um, people could challenge them. They could go through it and say, hey, look, it looks like you have the same person signed twice, you know, and the city, state yeah. didn't count, catch that. So I can tell you that they will be scrutinized. Yes. <laughs> there. I, I've talked to people too. I know. Yeah. That. But, I think too, you know. So we, uh, the news that I think last time we've talked about this is that the Alaska Public Offices Commission, the reg- campaign regulators in Alaska, have finally delivered uh, a penalty against this group. It's somewhere in the range of about ninety some ninety four thousand uh, dollars, with about half of that being targeted personally at one of the members, which I think is really mm-hmm. interesting wrinkle in it. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that they could try to dodge this, but when you've got the it you know a guy's name personally on it and not the campaign group it becomes a little harder for him to dodge accountability on that it's interesting it's going to be interesting to see if it gets on the ballot i think that there has been a lot of like you know angst about it that if it gets on it's going to be basically a coin flip you know or you know real tough fight i think though that like there are you know the way that these guys have run their campaign um, so far, the the like the the shadiness. There's this like the fake church that's involved in it. There's the real church that's involved in it. You know these like weird angry outbursts at meetings that we've we've seen. Um, I think it's kind of turned a lot of people off. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if there's like a supplemental independent group that comes in. 
that's the concern for sure is that these these guys collecting the signatures are jokers yeah. but like there's nothing to stop some big nationally funded right. organization from airdropping in once the signatures are collected and, and saying hey we're not those guys you know we're we're hiring Kelly Chewbacca and she's going to run our <laughs> yeah. very professional thing that's totally different than those well, Kelly guys Chew- that- yeah so <laughs> I, yeah i mean i think that the I, I i would be i would be really interested to see kind of how it is moving forward i think that they're you know, as we're getting further away from the first time that we implemented it, right? I think the confusion is sort of starting to die down. I would hope people are seeing some of the results. Again, you know, with the understanding that most people probably aren't watching House Finance Committee meetings where these sort of impressive young new people who've succeeded through RCV are like doing a decent job. But I think that there's a lot of, like, I think that, you know, my whole takeaway with RCV is that, like, it's not not really going to like necessarily bend the the dial significantly when it comes to like the political actual like party breakup of Alaska. I, you know, you're not going to elect a Democrat under RCV in Wasilla or Eagle River anytime soon. But there are like on a lot of these races, though, you are going to end up with a more moderate member because the, the kind of the, the fact is that a lot of these districts, these you know what we think of as these like total strongholds of conservative politics you know the, these these stronghold candidates that are, are the favorite party get 65 percent of the vote right that's like yeah there's still 35 percent of the vote that is at odds with that the, the far right that has um, been produced out of these primaries and so you know there, there that all of a sudden that 35 percent that has never ever been represented by these rep- people have an option of at least influencing which Repub- which flavor of Republican you're going to end up with. And same with some of these Democratic races, too, right? You're going to end up with maybe a more de- moderate Democrat than you might have in the in the past. And so my line is that you're not going to elect a Democrat with Silla, but you might not be embarrassed by your representation. <laughs> and I think that's like, I think that's kind of a big deal. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Because I think, you know, you've got guys like, you know, uh, in the House, you have Justin Ruffridge, you have Will Staff up in Fairbanks, you have Jesse Bjorkman in the, in the Senate for um, the Kenai, who are very different from their predecessors. You know, and Jesse Sumner um, out in Wasilla, he had run against uh, Eastman before, came really close to beating him, and would, if he had been paired up under ranked choice voting in the same district, I, you know, would have cleaned the floor with them, right? And yeah. so it'll be interesting to see how attitudes have maybe changed i think there was a, a decent contingent of people who were you know oh it's so confusing and complicated but i think that's because we like a lot of the language around it you know the media especially wasn't particularly helpful in it you know i think we were trying to like explore the the weird intricacies of it like what if somebody what if it's tied what if it does this you know these are just like super edge cases and once right. we saw it kind of play out it was not nearly as weird or confusing it made a lot of sense all these sort of election results all i think made plenty of sense when you kind of were looking at them in the, in the rearview mirror i mean the main the main thing is that we've we've had an election under the system and the world didn't end yeah. it wasn't like you know we had some good results we had some bad results it seemed to work people were able to express their preference yeah more, and I think... more people were able to pr- express their preference with more granularity and I think what's what's interesting about the effort to repeal it is that really their main I think their main qualm with it really is that the system isn't as friendly to far right Republicans as it once was. Right? right. There's no there's no longer this like free pass from the primary election to the legislature anymore. Yep. And I think that simply that that's 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 why they're going after it, right? They're going after it because Sarah Pella didn't get in, because Kelly Chewbacca didn't get in, because some of the most odious sort of like, you know, legislative candidates didn't get in. And I think that is an important thing to remember here is that for all the talk about like understandable voting systems of of spoiled ballots or not spoiled ballots, what is the exhausted ballots? All this sort of like kind of stuff they're throwing up at the walls, all under the the leading guise of we got to make it better for hard right republicans to win in these races again right and the decisions should be made in the primary elections closed primary elections not in the general elections semi-closed part primary elections before anybody gets on our case about it they're semi-closed I mean, it is, it, like you if you're a democrat you can't vote in the republican election right. in the primary like it's i don't know is that not closed well if you're <laughs> in, in non-partisan you could so 
Oh yeah. man, yeah. So it's 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 it's. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Even if it was a noble cause, which I don't think it is, I think it's undermined by the way that they've approached this election or approached this process, and and the the, the failure to be honest and straightforward with their the reporting process, their continued refusal to do so, I think really tarnishes a lot of it. And you know whether that ends up mattering to anybody beyond those that can be right. bothered to listen to APOC hearings uh, yeah. and follow Twitter threads about APOC hearings, you know. I guess there's a bigger question about that, but still, I think, you know, for me... Oh, my me, God, Matt. That is something I want to talk about. I want to talk about Twitter. Okay. Well, first of all, well, Twitter doesn't exist anymore. I'm good. I'm good on... I'm good we're good we're done. We, talk, we okay. talked it into the ground. Now, why the hell are you still on Twitter? It sucks. Yeah, I mean, if you... It's not Twitter. It's if, this, like, X go, <laughs> thing, and they're terrible to journalists. They've they've arbitrarily banned a bunch of journalists. They have this, like, auto-response where you if, if the journalist sends them a question, they send a poop emoji back. They're not doing good things. Well, <laughs> what, it, why, why are you there, and how do I get all of the AK leg people to come over to, like, Mastodon and hang out over there and talk with me? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I would, I would say that I'm hardly there. Um, I don't know. I think, like... For me, there is simply a level of systematic inertia, I feel like, that, you know, if I can't pull, you know, all my followers are there, uh, I'm used to the tools, I have no real reason that I'm there beyond, eh, it's easy, it's easy enough to be there. I don't know, I think that, like, for me, through kind of this whole sort of exercise of seeing Twitter just fall apart constantly is that honestly like my alternative is like maybe I just don't need to be on social media at all or very yeah, maybe. much less I don't know I like I I, I, I really too, enjoy like, I really enjoy the the thing that that I loved about the little AK leg hashtag on Twitter was was all of the journalists um, and kind of and political insiders frankly who are on there sharing opinions talking about politics like it feels like a good public discourse and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of arguments and disagreements but people like pull up these facts and like you know check each other's shit and it's it it becomes a good discussion i think ultimately and you're seeing these like your documentation of meetings like the kind of the live tweet threads having those in a public space is really good and even the um, and you cover it with a little bit of context too. So you're like, okay, this guy said this, and this is a callback to this mm-hmm. previous policy or decision or whatever. And I think that like it goes so much deeper than the news. Like what what is published in like a traditional article is this kind of like you know if you got that inverted pyramid news article thing that we're all kind of like married to, and. I don't think it's as, as like visceral or honest, you know, it's like, it's, it's sort of all the, all the hard edges are rounded off and it's, and it's this polished piece that we're getting. And it's important to get a, an article like that, that is really professionally made. But I think it's also really important to see the thing in, in this kind of rough hewn context, to see journalists thinking through their process and to sharing their frustrations and to like, you know, it, it's, for me, it's like, oh, wow, these are, these are people that I care about. And I think, and I think about when I, you know, when I was kind of a younger newsreader, it was just like names on a page. You didn't, it didn't matter who wrote what or who thought what. And I think that that having these discussions in the public space just brings so much more to the like legislative context. Um, and I think that we've seen legislation change and as a result of the conversations that happen in that hashtag. And we've seen narratives change as a result of things that happen in the hashtag. And so I think to watch it like, kind of dwindle and die and diffuse is is like kind of frustrating for me to to steal your favorite word (laughs) um i think that the uh you know i what i'd really love to see is like that conversation continue but in a space that's like more accessible and you know in in casting about for that space you know i kind of looked for you know like there's like blue sky and there's threads and there's all these like things that are tied to like corporatists and whatnot but then there's like mastodon which is this like open source you know it used to be pretty janky but it actually works pretty well now and it's it's like open source twitter clone that is like a pretty good thing and some alaskans started uh not too long ago they started alaskan.social 
which is like this owns it's a server that's run by Alaskans, funded by Alaskans, like people give donations to help prop it up. And it's part of that kind of big federated universe. And so you can follow people, you can read things. I don't know, it, it seems like a a good functional alternative that's a little bit more in the like public radio model of things. And so my, this is my pitch for you. Please come join me. Come post things that I can read again. Cause I can't read your shit when it's on Twitter. I know that's, that's that is deeply frustrating where it's now a lot of the Twitter stuff is like locked behind a login. Right. So yeah. my like brother got rid of his and no longer read, no longer. I can't even send him funny tweets anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Funny post, ex posts, excuse me. I have to take a photo of the screen and text it to you. No. And no, it makes I, me sad. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I think it's well reasoned. I think that, I think Twitter is, you know, rapidly declining. I think that the, one of the biggest things that I think is frustrating to me there is, um, you know, people who pay to get the blue check mark now have an outsized voice on it right and i think that that you know the idea where it's like the blue check marks are the first comments that are shown under posts and you know i think also have a very high power in kind of driving what gets suggested or how that sort of stuff goes yeah it sucks like i i don't disagree with you i think though that like for me yeah i don't know i i think that like I struggle with it in a lot of ways of like what I want to do on social media. Do I want to be so there in the first place? Why do place? you use social media? Like what? Yeah. I mean, originally it was, was that I like the reach. I like to be able to be able to put that process out there. Like for me, in a way, it's a note taking application. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to yeah. take my notes in a public way and for people to see how these meetings are happening in real time you know oftentimes i'm you know if you're looking to see what's happening with apoc or whatever i'm the way to yeah. do it right um right but if you're if you're using it as a note-taking app there's no reason you can use you you couldn't just use another note-taking app that reporters without borders doesn't describe as a haven for disinformation and in no way an ally to an organization defending journalism well i didn't i didn't hear about that one uh I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, it's, I think it's tough as it's, you know, on some way, you know, it, it's tough to make everybody pick up and go to a different platform altogether. Right. And, yeah. and I think there's going to be, I know cause I'm trying some inherent like <laughs> loss of that system. And I think as long as, you know, a vast majority of people are going to be on Twitter still, I'm probably going to be there right because I, that's, yeah but i think that's but that's like a catch-22 you're saying i'm on twitter because people are on twitter but if you left twitter then fewer people would be on twitter yeah so it's i mean and, uh, yeah and no, I, I i would yeah. say that you're kind of an anchor tenant in the ak leg scene <laughs> so that's why i'm i'm trying to leverage my relationship with you to pry you loose and s send you elsewhere yeah it's true yeah you gotta get uh like yeah sign me like the every all the golfers to the saudi we got Arabian james brooks championship yeah we got james brooks baby you gotta give me three billion dollars baby no I, I yeah i don't yeah i don't know i mean i think i think for me like i'm gonna be like deeply honest here is that like yeah. i'm a creature of inertia in a lot of ways like i uh you know, found ways that work for me in my workflow. And, and if you follow my work, you know, my workflow even isn't even that good, uh, at times. And I think it's for me, like the prospect of essentially restarting this whole thing on a new platform with new tools with a new workflow with follow building a whole new audience is daunting and is sort of is is discouraging from it and i think that's sort of the problem with it um what if you are cross-posted i mean like yeah. it feels reasonable to have like a backup plan for when twitter goes bankrupt which is going to happen right yeah i mean i yeah I, I don't know i think that i mean that's that's part of what my newsletter is uh yeah is the backup um you know i think that was really driven by Part, part of the decisions that came, you know, helped shape that was, you know, me getting banned by pre-Elon Twitter, right? For reporting what yeah. Laura Reinbold was saying in meetings, right? And so, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. All right, I'm going to fundraise $3 million to get you to come switch platforms. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that I, I I mean to be like that's obviously being jokey, but I think that is sort of the that's sort of where it comes down to, right? Is that like personally with my time and effort, I still get the best bang of my buck out of Twitter, right? And I'm still like I, I would love to try to be on everything and be for everywhere, but like ultimately my time and resources are finite and I'm going to like have to focus on where I can get good return on that. And, and although saying that at the same time where I'm like battling where shop myself matters. constantly to do a newsletter. Where, is where you tough. shop matters. Yeah. Like where you know, you're shopping at the Nazi store. Like <laughs> that's, that's there pretty shitty. Fine, hey, look, there are many fine people at this Nazi <laughs> store. <laughs> okay. No. All right. No, I think, I, I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, I think it's, I mean, I'm not even on face. I'm on, you know, I'm, I post once a year to Facebook. I'm on, I check Instagram like three yeah. times a year. What is difficult is that it really is the only place I've been really active on in, in any sort yeah. of capacity. And I think that giving that up is tough. I think that, I think really, I mean, it is. It's it's like saying goodbye to your to your hometown in a way, right? Like, it's yeah. Now it's being run by Nazis, and you know, it's a little hyperbolic, but it's not. It's not being run. It's not being run by like forces for good. Yeah, and and so, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I think yeah. That, like, I, well, I'm me, sorry part, to make you for, think for about me, this because it feels it like like it feels I mean, like one of those things that's inconvenient to think about, but that. If but I'm, yeah, I'm gonna I mean, plant a seed. Yeah. I'm gonna make like, you think about it. It's the same it's, way it's when real. you know everyone's. Uh, you know, like I every year I'm like I need to do a survey of my newsletter readership to see <laughs> what, what's working, what's not working. I'm gonna do it right before session, or so I can kind of like reorganize. And then it's like, oh, I'm like five days away from session and I haven't done any of that uh, because I don't have the you know the and it's always you know it's sort of it goes back to like working at the paper a little bit. Is that yeah. like you have this daily grind that makes it really hard to do long-term stuff like we always talked about wanting to do more like in-depth reporting but it's like when you got to fill the paper that day there's not that much time for it and so i don't know like it's it's just it's another thing to add to the list that i need to do you know like the other thing is i i I keep on meaning to want to make stickers and commission you to make them but i forget to ever even bring it up so there we go bring it up for literally the first time this idea i've had for like six months here so like (laughs) what kind of stickers am i making i don't know i'm that's that's what i need to talk to you like i want to do some i will really do want to do something that like i mean i want to thank the people that like have been doing my following my newsletter i want to figure out something that i can give to them in a way to give back because like alaska Alaska memo stickers yeah i think so but I think people cool. have been like so. I mean, again, like I go back to it. For me, I'm like I've been incredibly lucky, right? Like I, you know, Twitter. If Twitter goes away tomorrow, if Twitter had gone away like three years ago before I started the newsletter, it would be really tough for me, right? Now I have the newsletter, and it's been an incredible backstop. It's been an incredible piece of support for me and the work I do. And the the, the reality is that it is still me. It, it is still relying on the ups and downs of it. But people have been incredibly patient and, and supportive of it and so anyways this is one um, one of the so i guess i want to thank my newsletter so i'll do that and then i'll think about once i get that done and my my thing done and i finally catch up on all the editions of the newsletter i've been meaning to write then i'll then i'll do that so i got yeah. a to-do list and then i'll I then i'll get short... then i'll open a mastodon account that okay but i think a short like letter of gratitude to your newsletter people like that's great that's a nice way to start the year and it's not your 3000 word mega thing that you're like laboring under you know it's like quick and easy and um that's you know it's nice man, nice is, to this just is sort why of... I like talking to you pat and i'm talking to people <laughs> i think that's like honestly like you know i think that you know one of the nice things about this podcast and, and about twitter and about the community we've had and will maybe have on a new platform is that like it this collaborative nature of it all is what helps me kind of uh stay active and interested in it because like i was i show it was you know i've been off for the last like two weeks not really all that plugged in i've been struggling with this other piece i've been writing about i've been kind of just like feeling morose about a lot of things and i was talking to another reporter and they're going anything you're interested in i go no really and but but even in the process of like catching up and, and talking about what they're working on, talking with other people about you know this initiative process, it juices me up. I'm really excited again, and so I think yeah. that yeah, I don't know, maybe 
yeah, maybe maybe I'll get around to writing a letter of gratitude. I'm writing it down on my list. Number one. All right. Letter of Put gratitude. Mastodon on your list. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> so is it Mastodon or is it Blue Sky? You sent me a tweet from Blue Sky though. No, I've never been on Blue Sky. Oh, maybe it was just. Oh, I thought it was something. No, oh. I'm on Mastodon. I'm over oh, in geez. in uh, the the furry elephant land. Oh. Yeah, so for anyone else that's out there that's not Mac, Matt Buxton that is listening to our conversation, um, you can join Mastodon if you'd like. Uh, you don't even need to join. It's like you can peek in if, you, if, you, if you're if you a lurker. It's a great spot. Um, Alaskan.social, though, is a server that was set up by Alaskans uh, to host conversations about Alaska. And there's, a, there's some good folks on there and folks you'll – maybe uh recognize as expatriates from uh the land of of the app formerly known as twitter and uh i'm hoping that we can get enough inertia there to have some legislative discussion this session but it's uh yeah we'll see what happens all right well thanks everyone and uh matt i'll see you later yeah see ya oh i'll be in juno at the end of the month what yeah great just for all right cool like i'm literally coming in Hoping to not have to cross paths with legislative stuff. So Okay. There for well, friends. Let's eat a hamburger or something. Yeah, sounds good. All right. I'll see you later. All right. Bye bye. Bye. What do we got? Two more years? Three more years? Did we just elect him? Oh my god.